Amen and amen and amen. Because of Jesus Christ, we stand in a state of victory. As God's people, that's who we are. People of victory. The victory of the cross of Jesus Christ who paid for our sinfulness that we might have eternal life. Does that get you excited? Oh, man. Our wood's a little wet, but we're moving along there pretty good this morning. What a, what a great time of victory and encouragement and praising the great name of our God together and gaining strength in His name and with the encouragement of each other as we sing together and lift up our voices and hear God's Word. Uh, I, God is doing and continues to do mighty things among us. This is a great year and a great start to the year. And uh, these two young men, the testimonies this morning were just amazing. Thank you, guys. It was just phenomenal. The first fruits of what God is doing this year. And uh, there's going to be 10 others who follow them in baptism and more. But we have 10 preparing right now for baptism. And because of two services, sometimes you don't get to know about these things because they're happening in a different service. But uh, God is at work and... and, um, God has uh, brought into salvation a dear lady who, uh, who he himself brought to our church. No one else brought her here. And he's brought her into salvation. We're excited about what God is doing. And uh, we praise his name and we, we honor him and lift him up. And I also want to encourage you to be in prayer for, for Ed and Hester and the funeral service this week. Um, Ed McVeigh Jr. was a sergeant with the Toronto Police uh, and... Uh, we anticipate that uh, much of that Toronto force will be with us on Wednesday. Um, I'm not sure you, you know this, but in Durham Region, the York Regional Police, Toronto Regional Police, or Toronto Police and Durham Regional Police, so many of them make their residence here with us in Durham Region. And our heart, uh, we have a special heart here at Calvary for our, our officers of the law, and uh, we want to reach them for Christ. And, and so be in prayer that God is at work and, and in the... Uh, in, in the work of, uh, of this, this opportunity um, to both encourage our brother and sister Ed and Hester and in this uh, tough time for them and at the same time see God do mighty work, uh, which I know is, a, is a, a burden of their hearts that God would glorify himself in these things. So, so be, it, uh, be in prayer about that, uh, will you please? And then, I, I, again, I just want to reiterate that uh, the place to be tonight is at Calvary Baptist Church, 6 o'clock. The place in all the region, there's no other place in Durham region to be tonight, but here at Calvary Baptist Church, we are so excited about the fact that, that um, there is uh, clearly a move of God that is very significant, and uh, the, that's the only explanation I can give for the fact that 20-plus churches have decided that this is the place to be tonight, and their pastoral staff are leading their congregations to come here, believing this is such a strategic moment in our history as a region. So um, we're going to have different denominations, the different flavors of the body of Christ. It's an exciting thing and is a blessing to the heart of Christ who desires that we would be one in Christ. And I, I believe, and I've told you this, I believe that God is in a saving mood right now and uh, we need to be passionate about that. Uh, the only thing that will hold us back, hold God back from doing what he wants to do is sin in our lives or our failure to call in the Lord. So I'm encouraging you to be part of that, and, and I can't say enough, those of you who've been to university in your past somewhere, you know that that's the toughest, one of the toughest places in life to take a stand for Christ. And we are calling on these kids, a hundred or, or, or more, to actually uh, publicly declare who they are over these next several weeks. It's going to be a challenge for them, it's going to be hard, and the enemy is going to fight, fight, fight against them. 
And uh, you remember how Elijah's heart was strengthened by the Lord uh, when, he was, when he thought he was the only one. And, and God said, no, there's 7,000 others who haven't bended their knees to the bales. And that encouraged his heart. And I really believe that the students who are going to stand in our place as evangelists on that campus need to know that God's people are standing behind them and they need to turn around tonight and see every one of these chairs filled to know that God's people are behind them and praying for them and standing before them and going before the throne of God on their behalf. So I'm telling you, we need to be here and we need to fill this place up tonight. Well, I... uh Okay, that was an hors d'oeuvre. That's not the sermon, but we, uh, we have other things to talk about t- this morning. But let's, let's go to God in prayer. Our Father and our God, we are, we are amped of heart because you are doing great and mighty things among us. And, and you are showing us first fruits of salvation and changing of hearts. Uh, we see, Father, you causing people's hearts to be impassioned and enthusiastic and energetic about the things of God. We see you doing things in our region that we haven't seen in a long time. And we realize, Father, that you are at work. You are stirring the hearts of your people because you want to do great and mighty things. You want to honor and glorify your name in this region. Uh, perhaps, Father, you want to set uh, us apart as the, the, the bell cow, the bell sheep in this country to lead a great revival uh, of what you want to accomplish. And so, Father, we pray and, and ask you and plead with you, let it be so of us. Uh, let it be true of us. Lord, I pray that you would cause in our hearts a demonstration of the work of the Holy Spirit that we would gather here in great numbers tonight and call upon the name of our Lord and and to rejoice together and to strengthen each other and to spur one another on to to the uh, service of our great God. And Father, I pray this morning as we've worshipped you and honored you and praised you, I pray, Father, that's been a sweet uh, and and savorous in your nostrils this morning. Lord, I pray that that um, uh, you've been pleased to gather with your people. Lord, I know that, that uh, I, I'm, in, I'm in, good, um, in good stead to say this is the place to be tonight because you're going to be here. Uh, Lord, I want to be where you're going to be. And so I pray, Father, that you would um, uh, shower upon us. As Tim said in, in his uh, testimony this morning, Lord, would you shower upon us your blessing um, that, that you would, would, would encourage our hearts that you're going before us. You, our champion, are going. You fight for us. And Lord, I pray that um, knowing full well that the enemy does not want anybody to be rescued out of his clutches. He wants to keep this region in darkness. Uh, Lord, I pray, though, that you would um, break through and demonstrate that this region belongs to the living God and not to the evil one. And so, Father, I pray now as we turn our attention to the the Word of God, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts with what we find there this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. The year is 2012. You may say, tell me something I don't already know. Yeah, you know it's the... And and as such, this is the end of the world year. You all know that. According to the Mayan calendar... December 21st, 2012, it's all over. <laughs> it's, it's all done. You know, um, we know that uh, through various stages of time, there's constantly an end of the world frenzy, and they sort of pop their head up from time to time, depending on what the political landscape is like or whatever. 
And um, many of you, of course, have been followers or investigators or prognosticators, hopefully not, but perhaps you have been over the years. You've read of the writings of Nostradamus or you've, you, you've, you've peeked at, at the things of uh, Jean Dixon. You remember how she was on the center stage for a while? You've read, you've read uh, Edgar Cayce's stuff or, or maybe you read Edgar Wisnett's book, uh, 88 Reasons the World is Going to End in 1988. That book's not a big seller right now, but, but anyway... Um, and then, of course, uh, how many of you have read Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth? Can I see your hands? Sure, most of us have, or many of us have. In fact, you're in good stead if you've read that book. Not necessarily eschatologically so, but, but because it was among the top sellers in all of Christian literature, uh, Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. You've read Harold Camping's work or whatever. And all of these books, of course, were establishing for us end-of-the-world scenarios or when the end of time is going to be or when the Antichrist is going to come or what the, who the Antichrist is going to be or any number of things. And, uh, of course, we all know that from the Scriptures, Jesus said, No man knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels or the Son of Man. Now, I have heard some people get saucy out there and say, well, yeah, Jesus said not the day or the hour, but he didn't say the month or the year. Come on. Jesus made it abundantly clear that we, as God's people, do not know. The Father has not given us the information that we need to start dates at. And I can tell you something that I'm pretty confident about. The last day on this earth is not December 21st, 2012. Because as soon as it gets named, I don't think the Father's going to take that date. So don't bother with dates. But I want to quickly say to you that the Bible does talk a lot about the end of time. And, and so I don't want to, on the one hand, say that we should be... Uh, uh, we should ignore the things of the end or, the, uh, or, or, or understanding the nature of what God has said. No, in fact, it's the word of God. We should, we should not take that side of things. Um, in fact, um, it's a bad idea to fall into the sort of same trap as, as, as those who, um, who, who set dates and, and get all frenetic about end time things. And, and particularly as we now crack open the book of Daniel and we spend the next number of weeks looking at Daniel's futuristic prophecies. In fact, it would be very wrong to underplay the magnificence of what we're going to find there. I, I, I hope to in, cause you to be very excited about the things. In fact, in the chapter 7 of Daniel, God really opens up for us his playbook for human history. It's something very spectacular that is presented to us here. Now, I need to tell you that the genre, the style of literature that we're about to look at is called apocalyptic. By the very nature of that style of literature, one has to enter with a certain trepidation and humility. Uh, Apocalyptic is a Greek word which simply means revelation or unveiling. What God does with us in apocalyptic literature in the scriptures, you find it in Daniel, you find it in Ezekiel, you find it in Revelation. Um, uh, What God does in apocalyptic literature is he presents to us images and art of things we know to help us to come to terms with things we don't know. 
but there's a, there's a struggle to be um, arrogant or prideful about taking the, the presentations of imagery and artwork and being dogmatic about how those things absolutely unfold. Although you're not going to find me one who's overly timid about making opinion on these kinds of things. Because I think um, the, the whole scope of God's word presents us with some pretty decent detail on, on uh, how God is going to wrap things up and what we should anticipate. And so I won't shy away from what I think God's word is teaching us. But I just want to say at the front end that I'll try to do it with in the, with, in the background of humility and understand that, that apocalyptic literature and the interpretation of it is a challenge. And by the way, apocalyptic literature is intended to create great emotion because it was always presented at times of great emotion. But that emotion is not to unsettle us, particularly God's people. It's to fill us with joy and optimism and enthusiasm. As Pastor Steve led us this morning so absolutely appropriately with the kinds of worship songs that declared our great God as king of the universe. That's what apocalyptic literature does for us so that we don't become unglued when we see the things around us unfolding in ways that that seem to look very depressing and discouraging. Not just on the political front, but even in your own personal life, in the in the, in the storyline of your own life and, and the discouragement that you might be encountering yourself, the power of apocalyptic literature, and in particular, the majesty that is presented there, gives all of us every reason to be courageous and bold and enthusiastic and hopeful about our futures if our futures are in Christ because He gets us the victory. So having said all of that, the scope of Daniel chapter 7, if your Bibles are open, that's where we're going to be this morning, is the story of human history, if you can imagine, from 605, roughly 605 B.C. through to eternity. In one chapter of the Bible. That's the scope. So you can imagine in the uh, uh, you know, 25 minutes that we have here now together uh, to handle uh, 2,600 plus years of human history and try to detail things for you is going to be a task that only the Holy Spirit could accomplish. And, and so we, um, we ask him to do that and to help us to see then touch the high points this morning. And, and I, know you, I want you to know this is not the last time we're going to talk about Daniel chapter 7. We're going to pop back in here once in a while as we try to build a case, put the puzzle together of the end of things that are all laid out for us in these last five chapters of Daniel, six chapters of Daniel, as we try to put together something we'll... We'll come back and we'll put together something more detailed later on in our series. But um, what God has has designed this chapter to do is to say to his people that despite appearances, there's a much bigger backstory. That the universe is God's universe. And though things appear out of control or they may appear out of control and heading toward very unnerving outcomes, the truth is that That history is moving in the direction that brings honor and glory and victory to our great God. He is moving everything to a great conclusion. Daniel 7 is God's commentary on the business of government for good and for evil. 
It's about the power of control. Whatever it takes. Human faces are uncovered in this text to reveal their true look. And it answers a number of questions. And particularly as we continue to build a case. Questions like, why is the world so rotten? What is happening? Where is this all going? Who's in charge? Where is God in all of this? These questions are addressed in chapter 7 of Daniel. Now, um, to establish the setting here, uh, Daniel the prophet has been in the business of politics for about 50 years. And um, the last 10 years of his life have been particularly politically tumultuous. Nebuchadnezzar had gone off the scene 10 years before this time. And there had been a number of usurpers to the throne of Babylon who, through several short reigns and various political coups and usurpers, uh, a number of, of individuals had attempted to lead Babylon. It says in the text that Daniel is now in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, who was actually the son of Nabonidus. There was a sort of co-regency, father and son, which is a rather interesting uh, play on the political scene whereby Daniel delivers theology of father and son. But I don't have a lot of time to talk to you about that, but it's certainly important to note. And so Daniel is, is left in this particularly rough time. And now there's a new sheriff in town called Belshazzar who has in his style of leadership somewhat marginalized a very significant political figure named Daniel, who had been significantly influential in these past 50 years. Now, you can imagine that Daniel may have been in the emotional state of, of you know, what's the use? You know, I had served God faithfully. I I'd tried to be influential and impact. And, man, things are just getting worse. They're not getting better. And, and, and I, my influence, uh, I, it seems to be that, that, that I'm being pushed into the background now. I seem to be of no value to anyone. What's the deal? And he goes to bed one night. And he has a dream. And it says it's a dream He has a dream and visions that were incredibly troubling. And that's what we have in Daniel chapter 7. That brings us, he woke up in the morning and wrote down his visions. And here they are. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of the dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven. In other words, from every direction, this vision is a complete picture of the earth. Churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. And it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. There before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. Remember I said apocalyptic is imagery and art. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked 
And there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Parenthetically, the other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left... I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth... It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from his, this kingdom. After them, another king will ri- arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the set laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But... The court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, 
was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. I want to quickly um, bring your attention to a few things. As I said, we can't be exhaustive in this text, but I want to bring you quickly to three things that I think are really important for you to, to take note of. Here's what we're really up against, and here's why we should be really fired up about our future, all right? That's where I want to take you today. Here's what we're up against, but I, here's three reasons why we should be really fired up about our future. And the first is this. The human kingdoms of this world are fundamentally opposed to the God of the universe. That's, that's the presentation that Daniel had in his dream. That's what troubled him so gravely. As he was looking and thinking about down the line and about what he had seen in history so far and, and what he was hopeful about, he realized that kingdom after kingdom after kingdom was going to be raised up and they were going to be fundamentally opposed to the God of this universe. Beloved, you can't transform the wicked nature of people with legislation. If you can't legislate common sense, you surely can't legislate common kindness. No matter how much anti-bullying bubble wrap we put around our children. The systems that we function under are predicated on power, and personal sovereignty and control, which cannot result in good. Fundamentally, the presentation here of the governments of the world is that the business of governing is predatory. We're not learning anything we don't know. We know this is true. We see it night after night unfolded for us in the news. It is fundamentally the way it is. But as Daniel was presented with this, and the contrast that kept being presented to him, in the whole notion of, well, if that's the way it is, if if governments are primarily predatory, human governments, then what's the use? Maybe God's people should just take the margins of society. Why don't we just give up? Why don't we just pack it all in? That's not the presentation of Daniel at all. I I mean, as we continue to follow along in Daniel's life, he continues to serve. This was the first year that he was serving in the reign of Belshazzar. He didn't throw up his hands after this vision and say, that's it, I'm out of here. I might as well take the margins of society. No, he stayed in there and, and continued to influence because the responsibility of the saints of God, regardless of the look of the landscape, is that we are called to be salt and light wherever God has placed us. And if God has placed you in places of influence and impact and governments and decision-making upon our world, then you are put in a position to to speak for salt and light, to speak as a preservative of all that is righteous and good. You're you're to to shine uh, the light and expose wickedness and shine the light on the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do, to be restrainers. We're to fight for good until God moves on to the next chapter of history. We are called to be those people who serve the purposes of God, the God of mercy who presides over the whole universe and promises reason for us to have hope. We're to be the kind of people who who make a difference and an impact fighting for for what God wants to see accomplished and the way things will be. That's what we're called to do and be. So we take courage because as this vision unfolds, all of a sudden bursting into the dream, into this vision, was a picture of a throne room. You see? Notice it in verse 9. The thrones were set in place. 
But no one was occupying these thrones. There was only one who was worthy to sit on the throne and preside over the universe. And his name in this text is called the Ancient of Days. A picture of the Most High. Why are God's people taking courage in spite of the fact that human kingdoms are fundamentally opposed and lined up against the God of this universe? Because the God of this universe is sitting on the ultimate throne over the universe. And you have this amazing picture whereby control comes from heaven, not really from earth, regardless of how powerful earth looks. And, and, and you know that on the basis of this, as you read along and you, you get to verse 12, it says the other beasts have been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. You realize that out of this throne room comes set times. God is in charge of the timelines of the power brokers of our world. The Caesars who rise up are also brought down. The Hitlers who thought they would have a thousand year Reich maybe survive four or five years. Whether it be the Husseins or the, the Gaddafis or the Mubareks. Whatever it is, they rise and they come down on the timelines of our great God. Human power has a time limit. And then there is this picture of the judge sitting on his throne. And, and the picture of this judge is personified for us. So we, we get a sense of, of, as I said to you about apocalyptic, from the, what we do know to, to see what we don't know. And we see the Ancient of Days with white, snow-white hair uh, and, and, uh, and aged Even though we realize that our God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He has never aged a day in his life. But we see this picture here so that we can understand the nature of our God who is pictured as a whitehead, older, experienced judge so we can see him as righteous and, and wise and full of experience. The one who, only one who is worthy to sit on the throne over the universe. And it's a picture of encouragement. And, and we see there that the books are open. He, he makes judgments not on the basis of emotional whim or subjectivity but on the basis of objective truth. As he looks and sees the verdict based on his record, record of the historic events of the people of his kingdom. The people of his universe. And the verdict comes from perfectly kept records. The journals are inventoried and, ex and examined. And they are endorsed by a myriad of witnesses that you can't even number It says 10,000 times 10,000. That's 100 million angels standing around saying, Yes! A thousand times yes! The Ancient of Days rules over the affairs of the universe and rules over the affairs of your life. So the summary picture as we launch in is that God is the dominant And final power shaping the universe in righteousness. Holding it accountable to his objective standards. And bringing it to a final and full unchallenged display of his glorious power forever. That's the picture. That ought to put some lift in your life. In your days. But then we keep looking and we keep peering at his dream and we realize that, that the vision goes on and that the kingdoms of man look like beasts. That catches us, that catches us uh, unaware. 
But that in contrast, there is one coming, it says, that looks like a son of man. There's a significant contrast here between kingdoms that, that are characterized and pictured in imagery as beasts. Cruel and fierce. Scary. Frightening. And then one who's like a son of man. The kingdoms of man represent all that is beastly and broken and toxic in the human heart. Take a look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, 10 through 18. There's no one who seeks after God. No one who understands. He goes on to talk about their speech is poisonous, blasphemous, cursing God, cursing one another. The kind of atmosphere that you often have to work in every day of your lives. That's the picture of mankind, dominated by evil and cruel power. The intention to harm and, 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 and the conquest of others. When you add causes like racism and historic grudges to it, then you have these empires that rise up and attack one another. That's the picture of history. Uh, Tremper Longman, in commentary on Daniel, writes this, At heart, we all... We are all self-seeking rebels ready to crawl over the bodies of fellow human beings in order to seek some small advantage for ourselves. That's the picture that that is portrayed here. And by the way, uh, Daniel 7 is not chronological in its positioning in the book of Daniel. If it were chronological, the chapter 7 would be placed between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And you need to see the magnificence of this because the prophecy that is presented for us here is four unfolding kingdoms of which Daniel could only know by experience the first. He was only alive and, 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 and in this dream time uh, uh, during the first kingdom. And the rest of it is prophetic f- pr- prophecy of future kingdoms that would unfold. It wouldn't be too long in his particular life that the second kingdom would show up. At the end of chapter 5, verse 31, when, when the Babylonian empire fell. And so presented for us here are these, in be- these beast pictures of images that I think uh, uh, represent uh, corporately the major categories of sinfulness. You have uh, both four, four actual kingdoms... But you have them described for us in particular ways so we will see the things that are arrayed against God. And it starts out with this first kingdom in verse 4 is like a lion with eagle's wings. And when you think of a lion and eagle, I mean, the, the lion and the eagle, which are symbols that are used by many countries to be their national emblem. What's with the beaver? <laughs> anyway... Um, you know, a lot of countries, they grab some they, like maple leaf. Ah, you know, ah, drifts off a tree and falls to the ground. I, I, I'm sure, but, but eagles and lions. Now, those are powerful images, aren't they? And, and they bring to my mind, as, as it says there, that the wings were clipped and then it stands to its feet. There's a sense of pride. This represents the, the nature of mankind and the governing of pride. But it also represents a first historical kingdom from the time of Daniel, the, the kingdom of Babylon, which was uh, a parallel with Daniel chapter 2. You have the, the statue of those kingdoms. And after that, it says there was a kingdom that would come that would be like a bear. 
But it says it's like a two-sided bear. One side is higher than the other, has some sort of advantage. Well, it wasn't too long until God turned the pages of history and decided that he'd had enough of Babylon. And he brings along a kingdom that, by the way, has two governing peoples, the Medes and the Persians. A bear with two sides. One has a greater advantage over the other. We'll talk more about these things as we launch further into these texts. And then after that, there would come a third kingdom that was like a leopard. And by the way, when I think of bear, I think of Bruins, I think of power and might. But we're talking about sin this morning, so we'll talk about the power of people. The power of the corporate. The power when people get together... And choose to do something for good or for bad. And in this case, for bad. In uh, marriage counseling, I I like to mention to people that um, the the key struggle you're going to have in marriage is, is as a result of this. You have one sinner who's going to get married to another sinner. And that means you're going to have twice as much sin in your relationship now. In your life. That's where the battle comes in. That's where the battle lines are. When we get together, the sin is just magnified. And so you have this power of sin. Then, then you have this third kingdom that says like a leopard with, with um, uh, four heads and wings. When I think of a leopard, I think of swiftness. I think of speed. And with wings, that even accentuates that. And, and, and of course, what kingdom followed the Medes and the Persians? Anybody know? What followed along was the kingdom of Greece. And the swiftness and power and speed when Alexander the Great came onto the landscape of history and and with power and might and speed swept across the earth and broadened the range of influence of the kingdom of Greece beyond the great kingdom of Babylon, beyond the great kingdom of the Medes and Persians. And it says there that there were four heads on this leopard. When Alexander the Great died, there were four leadership Kings that came to power and vied for the power of, of the, 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 Greek, the Greek power was divided in four and there was constant turmoil. And then following, finally, it says there's a fourth kingdom coming that, that um, it says is the, uh, the, the most terrifying and frightening of all. It, it crushes and devours and it victimizes and tramples and, and, and what it doesn't um, chew up and spit out, it stamps on the ground. But it says it's different than all the rest. It talks about, um, for instance, having iron teeth and bronze claws. It's not really like an animal. It's more like hmm, a transformer. It's mechanical. It's metallic. It's iron. It's steel. It's, it's industrial. It's the fourth kingdom. Following Greece was Rome. Rome machined its way over the landscape powerfully. The descendants of the the Roman Empire are all around us this morning in this room, still functioning. And so you have this presentation of four kingdoms, but with their beastly faces. But it says, I looked, verse 13, and there before me, was one that wasn't like a beast, but rather like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
the ultimate prototype of God, the intention when man was created in his image. There it is, the Son of Man, an Old Testament amazing presentation of Messiah. Uh, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here you have the second person of the Trinity in presentation, Son of Man, Ancient of Days. There it is for us. No excuse for the New Testament people to miss the point that, that God had presented himself in this way. And by the way, Jesus' favorite description of himself when he was here among us was Son of Man. He doesn't represent brute beasts. He represents just the opposite. His kingdom isn't brutal. It isn't cruel. He rides on the clouds like a chariot. By the way, that's an amazing picture. Uh, We won't take the time, but if you look in Psalm 68, Psalm 104, Isaiah 19, Nahum chapter 1, it it presents there in the scriptures that there's only one who rides the clouds of heaven. God himself, who is the son of man. He comes from a completely different base of operation. comes from heaven. He has special, special access to the Ancient of Days and, and is glorified. He's granted absolute dominion over all the kingdoms of this world. And to those who are his, without discrimination, he grants an everlasting kingdom. You have this picture of fierce nations rising up against fierce nation. Racial peoples attacking the other race of people, destroying them. The Babylonians being destroyed by the Persians and the Medes. The Medes and the Persians being destroyed by the Greeks. The Greeks being destroyed by the Romans. And on and on it goes, down through history. But this kingdom is a kingdom that will be different. This everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of Man, the kingdom that he brings in will be represented by all peoples, by all nations, by all languages. There will be no racial discrimination because he is the Son of Man not the son of politics. And so he loves those who serve him. And if you are united to him, you will be included in him in his kingdom. It says here that he turns over the kingdom to his saints, the everlasting kingdom. There's a final... Well, we're, we're, really, like, we're really burning up time here this morning. There's a final quick point I want to make, and I'll have to come back to this because we don't have time, but... Um, he goes, Daniel says, look, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by all this stuff, but in particular, I want to know about that fourth kingdom. And in particular, I want to know about that little horn in the fourth kingdom. Let me just quickly say this. The prophecy here in this text discloses that there is an energetic anti-Christian government coming that will be in its fullest stage of development just before God establishes his unbeatable, everlasting kingdom. Now, why do I say that? I say that because... In, the, in verse 12, it says, The other beasts have been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. There is this ongoing political, governmental reality that has been going on. But when it comes to this last kingdom, in particular, this little horn of this last kingdom, it says in verse 11 that he will be destroyed, slain, and thrown into the blazing fire. And then the kingdom of God will be given to the saints of God's people. And so what you have here is that from the vantage point of this first kingdom in Babylon, Daniel sees the fourth kingdom down the line, particularly the little horn. Now, who is the little horn? Tony Blair. No, I'm just messing with you. I'm just messing with you. In other scenarios, but you you have here that between Christ's work on the cross that resulted in the defeat of Satan and the curtailing of some of his power, and you're going to have to read Revelation 12 yourself, 
And, and just before the time when the everlasting kingdom belongs to the saints and all rulers worship and obey the Most High, a horrible time of rebellious leadership will dominate the earthly landscape. It's the final act of Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, where Satan's powers... Some of them were curtailed at the cross. And you read in the book of Colossians where uh, Jesus Christ in, in his death, burial, and resurrection disarmed some of the powers and principalities. And, and Satan, it says, was hurled out of heaven and was hurled down to earth and is now fiercely attacking and, 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 uh, and, 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 and full fury against the earth. And then it says this little horn will, be, will, be, will rise up and be given authority and opportunity. And here's the key. What will this look like? Uh, I don't know who the little horn is, but I can tell you what you should be watching for. In verse 25, he will speak against the Most High. One. He will oppress his saints. Two. He will try to change the set times. Three. And he will change the set laws. Now, you know all around you that you, you yourself now see these kinds of things happening. That's why John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 4, 3 said the spirit of Antichrist is already around uh, among us. But there is coming one who is a personified uh, reality of all of that, the little horn, who in other places in Scripture, in 2 Thessalonians, is called the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist in the, in the, the epistles of John. Now this one will set up a system whereby there will be he himself will be governing the world and, and calling out blasphemously against God our great God, the Most High. He will speak against Him. It will be a, the, the, the ultimate and final uh, uh, reality of the creature arrogantly and intentionally cursing the Creator. Also, there will be a time unprecedented of harsh and relentless oppression of the people of God. In fact, the wording here, the terminology here, the original language here is a wearing out of. And then there will be a attempt to change the set times of holy days, the set times of religious festivals. Uh, there will be a, a, a time when radical changes to time-honored traditions and customs will take place. Uh, not unlike taking Christmas and changing it to happy holidays. There will be this concerted effort to take away everything that points toward the Savior God. And then there will be also an, an, an unprecedented effort at, at uh, converting the moral laws uh, to a new morality. Splashed all over the headlines of the Toronto Star yesterday. Was the political fallout internationally of our government situation in same-sex marriage. And our prime minister, as a lightning rod in terms of whether or not he will champion this issue and cause the rest of other, uh, in other countries to be in disarray in our relationship with Canada. The whole issue of converting what we had as moral laws to a new type of morality. The spirit of Antichrist is already among us. There is coming a day just before the end when one will rise up in a concentrated way with great ferocity in these particular ways. Under God's supervision for a time set by God, time, times, and half a time. Year, two years, and a half, three and a half years. But it says there, but the court will sit. This is the good news of, uh, for God's people, verse 26. And his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. 
This is the reality of God's people. So let me just say to you this morning, don't become unglued or fearful or hopeless. No matter how it looks, God fights for you. And God is in charge of the universe. But make no mistake about it, these things have come to pass and are coming to pass. As as Babylon was followed by the Medes and the Persians, was followed by Greece, is followed by the Roman Empire, so will these things come to pass. Because God is in charge. Our Father and our God, as we uh, close our service down for this morning, and as your church uh, proclaims uh, triumphantly uh, of your greatness, as we proclaim and, and sing forth of your power, I pray, Lord, that you might encourage us all over again with the fact that the Ancient of Days sits in the throne room of heaven, presiding over the universe, unfolding the history of humankind is specifically uh, to the very detail of how you have laid it out. And I pray, Father, you will find in us the kind of people who uh, are encouraged and excited and filled with hope because our God rules. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know the exact time. But I can tell you that we do know that when this thing unravels and unfolds, it's going to do so quickly. And our champion is going to come riding in the clouds and come for us. There is going to be before that time a a great and unsettling time of opposition and trial and testing of God's people. And so it is important for us to be encouraged and hopeful, but it is particularly important for us to work diligently now while we have freedom to assemble, freedom to come and assemble tonight and gather and call in the name of the Lord that he might save people before that awesome day when time will be no more and all will be gathered into that final kingdom. So I want to encourage you as God's people to be encouraged, to stand forth for the truth, to, to uh, walk uh, courageously in the places that God has called you because our God fights for us and our God is champion and he is going to give us an everlasting kingdom and we are excited about what God is going to do for us and what God is doing for us even now. Father, we lift up our praise to you. We lift up our hallelujahs to you in the middle of that song. How important it was just to break into a praise the Lord because you are great and worthy of praise. And so our Father, we ask that you would continue to strengthen us For the journey that lies before us. We may be the generation that is called. To live out the final of the kingdoms of this world. And so our Father I pray that we will be strong and courageous. And we will be filled with the power of God. In these last days where the enemy will be fierce. But you the ancient of days. Son of man. Most high. Will operate your purposes through your people, to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.